The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everybody this evening. This is week seven of the eight-week fall Buddhist studies class, and we're studying the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths, which is really a more <clears throat> detailed version of what the basic teaching strategy of the Buddha was. Really this problem-oriented, like what's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the point, the appropriate use of a human life? And I think the Buddha might say, well, this orientation, framing our human life in terms of there is suffering, there is stress here and out there, and that's relevant. You know, as we live our lives, it's relevant that my heart hurts, that I sense that your heart hurts, that people are being taken advantage of or oppressed, or just normally running into difficulties that come with human existence. And in particular, the suffering that arises when we try to deal with the conditions circumstances of our human life, but the way we deal with the problems that come, aging, power dynamics, not having enough power in certain places in our lives, for example, often the way we deal with the ordinary difficulties is that we <clears throat> plant seeds for more suffering, and on and on and on, and this is samsara. Right, the cycles, the endless cycles of suffering. And this is what broke the Buddha's heart, as it said in the in the tradition, you know, after his awakening, contemplating the freedom that he was experiencing in his own heart, and contemplating sort of the bigger picture, he saw that human beings <clears throat> In, the, in their depth, they wanted the same freedom that the Buddha had realized. They wanted that release. But in looking for that release, striving for it, they planted seeds for the very suffering that they were experiencing. And this is something we can see over and over again in our own lives in particular. It's useful to see how we're dealing with our experience of dukkha in ways that plant seeds for more dukkha, more stress, more unsatisfactoriness, more despair, more striving, more fighting. So the <clears throat> Buddha really asks us to use the frame of suffering and the end of suffering, or the Four Noble Truths, as a way of understanding what to do with this human life. So whatever we're doing to earn a living and whatever we're doing in terms of being a family person or being a single person, that's just the context to study, oh, you know what, right now I'm experiencing dukkha. My heart, I feel some stress, I feel burdened, I feel tight. And instead of just reacting to that, I'm going to take it as a teacher, that I have a spiritual obligation to be interested in this experience of dukkha to relax, to stabilize present moment awareness enough that I can get close. Oh, 
oh, this is what's moving in my heart. This is that yucky feeling I've been running from or in denial of. Can I be with this? Can I be with this? Yeah, I think I can be with this. And we relax. <clears throat> and we get interested. And dukkha, this dynamic of stress, of tightness, it reveals itself in the space of that wise, non-judging, kind presence, present moment awareness, mindfulness. Oh, this is dukkha. It's a natural process, this dukkha, meaning there are causes. And when those causes are there, there's dukkha. This heart is tight. When those causes aren't there, there's not dukkha. So that's really the transition from the first to the second, is as we take dukkha as a teacher, it's going to reveal its truth, which is, it's not a noun. Dukkha, suffering, isn't a noun. Like, oh, you know, I'm suffering. It's a natural, dynamic, conditional process. Meaning right now, there has to be causes for dukkha. Now, we're, pain is a little bit different, right? I mean, pain can be a manifestation of dukkha. But dukkha is really more the resistance, the not liking of the ordinary mental and physical pain that comes our way. <clears throat> so when we stabilize awareness with dukkha and we see it as a natural process, then we're really discerning, able to discern, oh, here is the essential cause for this tightness in my body, this tightness in my heart, this pain that I'm living with. And it is the attachment to some desire, wanting to get rid of, wanting to become, wanting to have. And the mind constructs this kind of like a story, like a me who is suffering, but when I get what I want or get rid of or become, then I'll be free. And then it clings to that idea. This is not okay because I'm not there yet. I haven't gotten rid of or I haven't gotten or I haven't become. So this is suffering. But when I, and then the mind latches on, it believes in that story and it clings. And of course, the story can shift, but the mind is very quick. So it can go from clinging to one story to clinging to another. And it's the clinging that we need to discern as the essential supporting cause for the experience of dukkha. Ah, there's a cause here. This cause should be abandoned. And that's a discernment. That's not like me getting rid of it. It's a discernment. Oh yeah, this, this attachment, this not liking the moment being the way that it is, isn't helpful in any way. doesn't mean I shouldn't do something to change things. It just means that that contraction, that identification with the idea <clears throat> of not liking it and wanting it to be other than it is, is unnecessary and unhelpful and the cause for dukkha, cause for the stress that I'm experiencing. So this is a very tender place in practice, very alive place in practice. And we keep missing this place 
because there's a subtle identification with wanting our Dharma practice to work. If I'm just with this attachment, with this suffering, it's going to go away. But that's not the cause for it going away. The cause for it to go away is that embracing, kind-hearted, patient, curious, intimate, as if it's never going to go away. And that can be really useful. And, you know, we it's its amazing how, what a great teacher physical pain is in, in the sitting meditation process. Because, you know, if we sit long enough, our body's going to start to hurt, whether it's the back or the knee or whatever. Or just getting, the, <clears throat> getting antsy or something like that, or getting sleepy. But generally speaking, it starts to hurt after a while. And then that's a great place before it becomes overwhelming the unpleasantness just to get very interested in when the physical pain turns into dukkha so now there's like it feels like i have a problem my knee hurts and there's another 30 minutes to the sit and that's a problem right so it's not just the physical throbbing in my knee but there's this mental pain of being somebody who doesn't like the knee pain, doesn't think he's going to be able to make it to the end of the set, doesn't want to move and be judged for moving or whatever. You know, that whole entanglement that we fall into. And then what we want to understand at that moment, oh, it's always about suffering and the end of suffering. What a perfect moment. Okay, there is dukkha, right? The, the tension of not liking this pain, the pain and they're not liking. Now, we haven't really teased anything apart. It's just like this conglomerate of like, uh, out, I want out. I don't like this, right? And we recognize that as dukkha. So we get, we stabilize awareness. This is my teacher. We see there's an attachment there. There's part of the mind doesn't think my knee should be hurting. It's totally convinced. And that has, has the thought, and if this pain, if I can stretch my leg out, or if this sit were to be over, then I wouldn't, be suffering anymore. And there's a grip, an attachment to that idea, this arrogant certainty, right, about how to resolve this. That somehow not liking the pain, wanting the sit to be over, blaming some injury that I have, some stupid thing that I did or somebody did to me that caused my need to be weak. So whatever the obsession is and the clinging to that idea, ah, that's the cause. That is extra. And this is a powerful insight to realize because normally the mind lacking wisdom, we think attachment is functional. Liking something, wanting something, wanting to become that grip you know, we kind of feed on that intensity of attachment. We feel enlivened because of attachment. And and we actually can feel somewhat depressed or uh, unanimated when we're not attached. It's interesting, this transition, as there's more and more equanimity in our lives, it can be a little disorienting when there's more spaciousness and more ease and more equanimity it's like this transition from the motive and animating force in our life being attachment, greed, 
and hate, basically, to when that starts to fade some, or even a lot, and the more altruistic and the motivation of compassion and generosity, these wholesome, animating, motivating forces haven't learned how to replace greed, anger, and delusion. And we can kind of be in this place where what used to work, what used to animate our life, we don't trust anymore. <clears throat> but the new or the newer uh, animating forces haven't really come online in a strong way yet. And we can feel a little bit like uh, we don't know what to do with our life. But that's okay. It's called, you know, it's like this now. And we are trained to be aware, mindfully aware, and to be patient. And when the mind falls back into the old habits and starts to whip up some attachment, then wisdom catches that. I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way. You know how it is when we're a little bit down and stagnating or something like that. And have you noticed your mind wanting to whip up some attachment? Like even, oh, it could be a sexual fantasy, you know, just to kind of animate, bring some energy into the mind and body. It could be some hopeful thing. Oh, I could do this. I could become that. It could be some bringing up some revenge fantasy. Like I'm going to get, I'm finally going to get even with this person who harmed me. And then we might start to feel alive. And the juiciness of the greed or the aversion can mask the suffering, that there's a squeeze in the heart. And there we go again. But eventually, hopefully, the suffering wakes us up. We realize, hey, my teacher's back. There's dukkha. It should be understood. We soften. We're patient. Oh, yeah, it has been understood. Dukkha is an alive, natural process. There's a cause right now. Not later, not past, but right now there's attachment. That's the, that's the insight that whenever we're suffering, that means the heart is doing something right now, mistakenly doing something right now. It's attaching, it's identifying, it's clinging, hoping and fearing, right? Remember that beautiful passage from the teachings of Milarepa, the one of the patron saints of Tibetan Buddhism, the saint that lived back maybe in the 13th, 14th century, something like that. And um, yeah, the, you know, the idea is uh, when his practice was going well, the story is that the Dakinis, these feminine aspects of the heart and mind, started to chant to him, like his own wisdom singing to him. What a nice image that is, right? Beautiful dewas, angelic aspects of our heart chanting or singing to us the fruit of our practice, you know, like the insights that we've gained, hard-earned insights chanted back to us so we don't forget. And what did those angelic forces chant back to Milarepa? On the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. <laughs> so we may not want that little teaching, but it, it's like, that's the hard-earned lesson. When I, when I fall back into hope and fear, because it's juicy, you know, it's about me, my hope, even the hope for awakening, or the fear of not awakening, the fear of being an ordinary, unawakened human being, right? When we rely on hope and fear to motivate us, 
Well, then <clears throat> it's limited. It's problematic. But of course, we're there most of the time. That's okay. So then our path is to realize, often so much of our path is to realize what's not working. Okay, there's dukkha. Something's not working. When there's dukkha, I'm told there's attachment. So I'm going to really soften with interest with this dukkha until I start to experience the dukkha as a present moment natural or conditional process. And when it's alive with that natural movement, like it's happening right now, then wisdom there in the mind in the present moment can see, oh yeah, the mind's attaching, the mind's identifying, and that is the cause for the squeeze, for the suffering. Okay, let me be really interested in seeing the unhelpfulness of the attachment, the identification. And let me get really curious. We have to inspire ourselves. This is such a place for borrowing faith and confidence from our spiritual elders or the lineage of wise folks before us who have sung this to us. You know, the cessation of craving, the cessation of attachment, the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion, the cessation of clinging is the liberation of the heart is what the heart has been seeking for almost forever. And every time we can be stably curious and open to the dynamic of being attached, just observing it, oh yeah, this should be abandoned, this isn't helpful, observing it with patience, with understanding, with real interest. When it ceases, when there is no more attachment, and we catch a little of that flavor. Oh, this is the release. This is the peace of release. This is the ease of non-attachment. This is the mind that is momentarily empty of that clinging, that squeeze. Ah, this is the flavor of release. This is what the Buddhist teachings point to. This is what all the angelic forces, internal, external, whatever, right? All the forces of goodness, the beneficent forces that we want to listen to. This is what they're chanting, singing to us, pointing like that mother cow lowing. You can do it. You can observe attachment with a balanced, kind, patient heart, and you will see attachment cease, and that will clarify two things. The third noble truth, there is cessation. There is actually the flavor of freedom. Freedom is available. It has an unmistakable taste. There's a great story, I think, from the Zen tradition of somebody for a long, long time, decades, seeking a wise teacher and uh, in the monastery and gave up on the monastery, went off into the hills asking around because there was rumor to be a really wise person up in the mountains. And eventually this seeker found this teacher, this old one walking down the mountain trail <clears throat> with a bundle of branches 
on their back to carry into the village to sell for firewood to make a living. And uh, once the seeker recognized the teacher and they had that moment of recognition and the student humbly asked for some teaching and the old old wise one immediately just dropped this big bundle of branches, just kind of crashed there, tied up, but crashed on the ground. And it was like just an immediate putting down the load. And the student was pretty ripe, and they got it. Ah, yeah, you know. And then uh, they had their moment where the student had some, some opening about the cessation, letting craving, letting attachment cease. Ah, now what? Right, because the mind then wants, the ego wants to, okay, I saw something, I experienced something, now I want to own that freedom. So he was asking, like, how can I, how can I own this? And the teacher just picked up the bundle of, heavy bundle of branches, put them on their back, and continued down walking into town, just doing the next thing. Because the circumstances don't actually matter so much. What matters isn't like, oh, I need the perfect set, or I need the perfect teacher, the perfect retreat, the perfect set of teachings. No, we just need to keep meeting our teacher, Dukkha, have an honest and intimate enough relationship with Dukkha until it comes alive as a present moment natural process. Dukkha exists here and now. All the ingredients for this Dukkha, this dissatisfaction, this heaviness, this anxiety, this ache, all the ingredients are here and now. It doesn't mean that the past doesn't matter. It just means that whatever in the past matters is alive right now. That's a really important point because the story of our past keeps us from doing the work we can do here and now. The work is always here and now. There is no past and there is no future. There's just this. So if we're experiencing something here and now, then everything that is relevant is here and now. All the work that can be done can be done here and now. And that's that transition. That's why we take Dukkha as a teacher to have that insight. And then what that insight reveals is there is this attachment to desiring. There is desiring. Desiring is like life energy, just a natural, unavoidable force, animating force, including the desire to see clearly, like these wholesome desires the desire to be generous and to take care of everyone, to not cause harm. They're beautiful desires, and they're, you know, more mundane desires. And desire is just desire. And the misunderstanding of desire leads to attachment, to making desire something more than what it is, something to cling, something to get tight about. Then we got a problem. Then we have the cause for suffering, and we see it. We see how unnecessary it is. Just because there's desiring doesn't mean there should be clinging. There can be desiring without clinging, without identifying or taking it personally. And that's really the dynamic we're looking for. 
can I be with desiring without the attachment? So we look at the attachment, we see it's unhelpful, it releases, we get the flavor of the release. And like that drop by drop, that insight in that taste of release really deepens in the heart. And this third noble truth starts to manifest. That taste of freedom, that taste of release, that experience of the heart free from craving, free from attachment, that should be fully realized. Like whatever that is, that non-attachment, that non-grasping, that non-craving, right? That's why we use in Buddhism the word emptiness, the heart that is empty of locating itself as a craver, as somebody who wants, somebody who needs, somebody who has to have or has to get rid of or wants to become. That's that deep habit of locating a self that needs something, a self that's dependent on something. So the third noble truth is the deepening intuition, the deepening experiencing of the absence of that hungering, that thirsting, that feeding, that dependence. Oh, this is the mind, this is the heart, free of grasping. Oh, this should be realized. This should be fully realized, fully integrated, that this is always available. And that the deepening of this insight, the third noble truth, is the heart becomes really, uh, the more the heart remembers. Uh, I was um, at a conference, international conference of uh, Vipassana and set meditation teachers this summer. And I think it was Gil Fronstadt was talking. It was just a group discussion about awakening. And it, it might have been Gil Fronstadt, but it might have been someone else. But uh, just talking about how... Um, this deepening insight, it really leaves an impression on the heart. You know, one of the ways we talk about um, the deepening of this insight is how have I been changed by these insights? Like my way of relating, my way of being in the world, being in relationship with others, being even with myself, how am I different? How have I been changed? by these uh, insights. So these insights, like into cessation, this insight into cessation, uh, it leaves a taste, it leaves an impression. And we're trying to live more and more in relationship with that, those impressions that have been left in the heart. Oh, Freedom is possible. And the contrast, it's like uh, suffering and attachment really starts to stand out the more we trust freedom. Is it still buffering now? I got a message from somebody. I noticed that the uh, internet seemed a little unstable. How's that going now? People still hearing me? Maybe a couple of people could just respond in the live chat if 
you're hearing okay? Okay, hopefully it was just a temporary um, little fluctuation in the internet. Yeah, so I was just saying that uh, however faint, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, we just want to honor these little experiences of recognizing the cessation of attachment, the cessation of craving. Little impressions. I think Joseph Goldstein used to say, you know, this insight, we need to have it over and over and over again. Little tastes of seeing the cessation of suffering. And the more that that insight deepens, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the heart free of grasping, that's what allows the path to be clear. And this is, you know, it's kind of, it can be, it can be quite frustrating that the spiritual path itself, it's not like we get that at the beginning, you know, we walk into, walk into common ground and we're handed a pamphlet, this is the spiritual path. Actually, the spiritual path is that process where the path becomes revealed. It's revealed by walking, by doing the practice. And we, you know, we often don't know what we're doing. But the, the instruction we'll get from our friends and our teachers is we'll keep walking the path. It gets clearer. It gets clearer by doing the practice. And what is the practice? Well, and we should be able to answer that question to ourselves, especially now that we're in this far into the course. What is the path? Well, we're stabilizing present moment awareness so we can have a respectful relationship with what's actually most relevant. There is suffering here and out there, and it's relevant. It's our teacher. It's something to get close to and really this wholesome desire to want to understand, to have a honest and intimate relationship with the experience of dukkha. There's a cause. We want to really understand that cause. Oh, this should be abandoned. Attachment is the underlying cause. It's not helpful. There is actually release. It's available here and now. It's always available. That's that's liberating. Just, just that beginning insight that suffering is optional, that whatever entanglement my heart might get involved with, it doesn't have to be that way. And a lot of times, you know, people who have had some insight, that, that, that's a little crack. So even when I get entangled in some difficulty with my partner or difficulty at work or difficulty just with my body, part of the fruit of my practice now is that entanglement, that so-called experience of suffering, doesn't seem as real. It's almost like it's semi-transparent or porous. And it's like, seem to be Mark, the guy who's suffering, and it doesn't seem so real. It doesn't seem so uh, heavy, or um, there's some confidence that it isn't what it appears to be. And that allows, that actually just supports the whole process of being curious about dukkha, seeing the cause, being patient 
with the attachment until it ceases, building that confidence, that attachment, craving, the causes for suffering cease, and then the experience of freedom is one more time revealed. Oh, this is the heart in this moment with these circumstances, but no attachment, no grasping, not needing the moment to be other. doesn't mean the pain has gone away. It just means there's no um, pattern in the mind resisting conditions. In a way, like we say in the tradition, the mind has one more time entered the stream, just doing the next thing, responding, relating, doing what's next, but not resisting with greed, anger, and delusion. This life animated by generosity and kindness and compassion and clear seeing and the desire to understand, but not the friction of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the mind, momentarily at least, even if it's faint, touches into the stream, gets a sense of the freedom of non-resistance, just doing the best we can to take care of the pain, but not creating a personal problem out of it. And we've all had little experiences of this. I mean, I'll just give you one example that I've told a number of times, and you know, it was relatively early in my practice, maybe... 1984, 1985, and I've been pretty sincere for, you know, four years, five years, something like that. And, um, but I was driving home from seeing my sister and going across the Bay Bridge into San Francisco where I lived at the time. It was in the middle lane and uh, it was late at night, you know, 11 o'clock or so at night. And there was some traffic, there's always traffic on that bridge, but, uh, and it's, you know, five lanes, right in the middle lane, and a car stalled right in the middle lane. And there was enough traffic that it didn't make sense to veer out of the way. And so I slammed on my brakes, and, you know, doing that long skid, and the car starts to turn until it's, you know, 15 feet away from the car that had stalled, but now perpendicular, cars whizzing by, avoiding me, and... uh and then uh, I had a stick shift, so the car stalls uh, when you slam on the brakes like that. And so I had to start my car, and I had to pull out and the traffic that was there. And uh, and the interesting thing is just, uh, just the momentum of my practice at the time is just seeing that the mind just did what was next. And then there was a, f- a moment, maybe 30 seconds after I had sort of gotten enough speed and I was back in the flow of traffic, and it, I just remember the moment like, oh, I could I could make a real drama out of this. And the wisdom of the mind saw the mind, that mind moment, saw that sort of branch like, oh, yeah, I, I could create a drama like, what the hell was that person doing? Or, oh, my God, I could have died. Or, or just to create some identity and cling to that identity. And... You know, there are many possible identities to construct and cling to, but nothing made sense. And it was just, it was a real, like, a realization just to be the person driving home. That was enough, just to drive home as best I could. And um, that's this, uh, the reverberation of our practice is just seeing 
the more we see attachments cease, the more we'll catch all the little and big ways attachment wants to enter back into the mind. And we'll see that habit of attachment wanting to enter. Because of the growing, deepening taste of freedom, attachment is going to stand out more and more. So we really want to honor little tastes of freedom where we see, we notice the mind relatively or at times deeply free of grasping, craving, not needing the moment to be different. We really want to get a sense of what that feels like, so to speak, because it really sets up much more sensitivity to dukkha and much more sensitivity to the cause, the attachment. So we catch it quicker, uh, sooner in the cycle, before the mind builds up a, a head of steam and a lot of mental proliferation and entanglement with the attachment. I sent out earlier today um, <clears throat> a, a discourse from uh, scholars consider one of the early discourses, meaning really in the voice possibly of the Buddha, not something that got codified or systematized in later, you know, restating of the teaching from the Buddha. And uh, there's something really poignant I find about this. And there's some comments by Andy Olensky, which I'll read too, who translated this particular uh, set of verses. And it's really about understanding, like, what does my heart need to experience, need to see, that really starts to break this infatuation, like the habit, basically feeding on the intensity and the juiciness of attachment, of identification, of grasping, of struggling. Really, that's more and more the self, what we see as myself, it really is these, I mean, we think of them as being the same pattern, but they're really distinct patterns of struggling, being in conflict with the present moment, you know, different ways of being in conflict with the present moment, different ways of struggling, different ways of wanting things to be different. And that conglomeration of resistance and wanting things to be different we just in a superficial way, oh yeah, that's me. I'm, I know I exist because I struggle, because I don't want things, you know, and, and there's a certain intensity and juiciness to being in the battle, you know, me against nature, me against what's happening, me hoping that I'll become or I'll fix something or make something different. And it really, you know, it, it becomes our lifeblood that, that endless struggle. So what do I need to see for my heart to lose that infatuation? That's a good way to hear this sutta. And many of you have seen this, read this before, but it's really worth hearing many, many times. So this is how Andy Olensky translates this ancient teaching from the Buddha. Fear is born from arming oneself. 
So that arming, like feeling like the moment requires a grip. To protect myself, to get what I need, the grip is essential. Fear is born from arming oneself. That's interesting, even that first line, like the fear comes after that deep habit of freezing up, fixing, locating ourself, a somebody somewhere. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another, Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn hard to see lodged deep in my heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down. Now, I love that setup because it, it just makes me, maybe you too, it makes us really interested. Well, what is the thorn the Buddha's talking about? Well, maybe I want to take that thorn out. So he goes on in the second half now to describe that. Who here has crossed over desires, right? the attachment to desires, the world's bond so hard to get past. One does not grieve, one does not mourn, one stream is cut, one is all unbound. What went before, let go of that. All that's to come, have none of it. Don't hold on to what's in between, and you'll wander fully at peace. For whom there is no eye-making, all throughout the body and mind, and who grieves not for what is not, is undefeated in the world. For whom there is no this is mine, nor anything like that is theirs, not even finding selfness, one does not grieve at, I have nothing. Now, of course, we don't want to think that we're going to figure this out by thinking it through. It's really kind of a poetic transmission of confidence. You know, this really frightening setup of fish flopping like water too sh- in water too shallow. And just that that sense of observing our own neurotic activity, the neurotic activity of all of us around, you know, all the people around us as kind of this um, this activity that has no end, that doesn't lead anywhere, that just perpetuates tension and suffering, stepping on each other's toes. It really just breaks our heart. And it in this example, you know, it really strengthens the desire. There's got to be something I'm not seeing clearly, right? That sense of humility. What am I not seeing clearly? What's here? So instead of thinking we know what suffering is, 
we know what the cause is, we take a fresh look. Okay, it's here now. Let me open. Let me go and open and soften with exactly what I don't want to open and soften with. Let me pay attention. Let me be patient. Let me align with nature. What does nature have to teach me here? So this is what Andy says. Now, by the way, I sent you the link so you'll have both the comments from Andy, Andrew Olensky and also the comments. He writes, There is something particularly moving for me about this poem, perhaps because it is composed in the first person and appears to reveal the process through which the Buddha himself came to understanding. Perhaps because of the vulnerability expressed in the opening stanzas, where he admits his fear and sense of dread over the nature of the human condition. Or maybe it's just the utter simplicity of first the problem, people hurting each other, and then the cause, basic human selfishness driven by desire, or attachment to desire, we should say. And finally, it's solution, letting go of the ego's attachments. How easy he can make it all so often sound. And then at the end, uh, in, the, in the comments, Andy says, the later half of the poem describes how to cultivate a state of mind, a stance within the unfolding experience that avoids the dysfunctional move of creating and projecting oneself on every situation. Right? That's what attachment or identification does. There is a stream of happening, of experiencing, but the habit of attachment of grasping is the thinking mind, the imagining mind, it locates a sense of a self who then takes a stance against the present moment. I want it, I don't want it, I want to become, I don't want to become, right? So it locates a sense, a static sense of self, a me, that then is in relationship to the present moment, a relationship of attachment or dependence. And because nature is just a fluid and uh, a fluid and complex, wild unfolding, once the mind, the ignorant mind, locates a static sense of self, it's threatened by the wildness, the naturalness, the uncertainty of nature. It's like me against nature. We're always going to lose. The sense of self is always going to be anxious and uneasy and frightened, and suffering. And then Andy ends with these couple sentences here. These few, these few verses embrace the whole of the Four Noble Truths. The suffering manifests as violence, its cause by the thorn in the heart, the unbinding or crossing over this, and the way to cultivate the selflessness that constitutes real freedom. So I want to end just in the last 10 minutes or so and talk about what we'll be spending time next week and we'll have small groups next week. Hopefully it will work. But the fourth noble truth, the way, the path, depends on the deepening insight into cessation. Where we're little by little, sometimes powerful experiences, 
sometimes more ordinary experiences, but we're getting a sense, an intuitive sense, an actual sense of the heart, the mind, free of grasping. Now we definitely already know the, the heart-mind with grasping, with attachment. So it's the cessation, the mind empty of grasping. So all day long we can be curious about this. It's almost like we just drop in the question, how's the mind? How's the heart doing? Is there grasping? And if, if there's no apparent grasping, then really get interested. Okay, initially this seems to be the heart free of grasping. This is, so we, we, like I mentioned in the guided sit, explore the limitations, if any, of that sense, that absence, that emptiness of grasping, of attachment. Because it's really about what's not there, not what's there, not the freedom that's there as much of the absence. We really want to let the absence of grasping make an impression because that's what then reveals the path. So the Eightfold Path, you know, it's a map bringing practice into the world of sila, ethical conduct, relating with others, relating with the world, relating with earning our staying alive, you know, earning our livelihood in the world. We bring we bring the essential insight into non-grasping. What does that, how does that manifest then when I have to earn a living? How does that manifest when I'm talking to another human being, falling in love, raising a family? How does non-grasping show up in that world of relationship? How does non-grasping, the flavor of that release, that unbinding, how does it inform how I relate to the activity in my own mind and in the distractions and just in the psychological patterns of my mind? How does it relate to wisdom, to view? I like to think about the Eightfold Path as like we're bringing the fruit, the impression of release, the lingering, resonant flavor of release, of freedom, where then that um, inspires us to like, okay, let me start showing up in all frequencies, all places in my life. From that, those impressions that the practice moments of freedom have set in motion, we're changed, like I mentioned earlier in the talk, we become changed by these insights into dukkha, into attachment as the cause, into the cessation of attachment, the cessation of craving. We become changed, and that way of being changed then, we want it to manifest when I'm in relationship in the world. Right, So that when attachment gets triggered, like I mentioned earlier, there's some suspicion of, do I need to be attached? Do I need to identify with this fear? Do I need to take the greed personally? Yeah, there's greed, there's lust, there's fear, there's aversion. But maybe I don't need to relate to it as self with attachment. Right? So this is so this is how we do the work of sila, and that's what we'll talk about next week, which is one third of the Eightfold Path, right? Wise speech, wise action wise livelihood. So these just different areas of relating to the world. So 
with all the momentum of the all the cumulative tastes of freedom, how do I relate to this world? What is it? How does it inform my relationship to my partner, to my spouse? How does it inform my relationship to my body? How does it inform my relationship to what's moving in our communities and dealing with the injustice and dealing with, you know, the beauty and the horror of our wider world? How does it show up when I'm relating to my own mind, like especially in the more quiet moments or when I'm meditating and because of the relative simplicity of those moments, I'm just relating to the activity of my mind, right? That's mostly what we're doing in a sit. We see the activity of the body and the mind and we relate to it. And now we want the way we relate to the activity of our mind to be informed by that flavor of non-grasping. Because otherwise, we're just going to bring the same old attitude, like when we see something moving that we don't like, we, we think aversion is, you know, we get identified with aversion. So our meditation practice just becomes more control, more efforts to control or fix or make something go away, you know, hoping, fearing. But with the with our practice, meditation practice, informed by the experience of non-grasping, then we know the purification of the mind is a natural process. So we're just there with that stable, loving presence, and that's what quiets the mind down, not somebody who's got an agenda. Same with the purification of sila, or ethical conduct. It's like really being present, that's what allows us to restrain ourselves from acting out our greed and hatred in our relationships, not so much by controlling our habit energies, but by seeing clearly what's wholesome and unwholesome, what's helpful and unhelpful. And this is what purifies our view. This is the last third of the practice. So I'll go through the Eightfold Path next week. But to begin with this week, you could just think of it as three stages. The growth stage is ethical conduct, our relationship. The middle stage is working with the activity of our mind. And the deeper, more subtle stage of the Eightfold Path is working with the view, the, the way the mind understands, the frame through which the mind relates. Self-centered frame or the absence of a self-centered frame, just to make it simple. And in all three of these areas, our work with sila, ethical conduct, our work with samadhi, the activity of the mind, and our work with view or wisdom, how we're framing things with self-view or without it, we're just letting our insight into freedom, into release, into the unbinding of the heart, inform how we show up in all these places in our lives. We can't really force like how to realize the path. It really depends on that deepening insight. So a lot of our work is really being respect, having a respectful relationship with suffering, seeing attachment so that we can observe the release. When we observe the release of craving and attachment and clinging, we have another insight into cessation, a little taste of the heart that's free of craving, free of attachment. 
ah. And then that little momentary recognition of the heart free of craving, it illuminates how to be in the world, how to be with our mind, how to understand. It really is how we live out the path, the Eightfold Path. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.